Hello from Education International in Brussels. This is Ed Voices, a podcast of global education news and advocacy. EI is more than 400 teacher and educator unions and professional associations in 173 countries, representing 32 million members. Here's your host. Today we are talking to Jonathan Cox, Deputy Director of Citizens UK. Welcome to our podcast, Jonathan. Thank you very much for being here with Ed Voices. We're going to talk today about refugee education, migrant education, specifically in the UK. And we all know that inclusion does not just start or end in the classroom. We know that our teachers are always included and inserted into their social context, into their communities. So you are working for Citizens UK, which is an organization that works in the field of community organizing. Can you explain a little bit to our audience what this means, what community organizing is, and why you have taken up the issue of refugees inclusion in the UK in the last years? So community organizing is is a method for ordinary people to make change. Uh, It was developed in the United States uh, in the 1930s and 40s, Famously, of course, Obama was a community organizer before he was a politician. And Citizens UK has been practicing community organizing in the UK since 1989. And there are three kind of key elements to community organizing which distinguish it from from other means of making change. First of all, it starts with community institutions. So we don't recruit individuals to participate. We recruit organizations that are rooted in a geographical place, talking about churches, schools, mosques, trade unions, residence organizations, refugee groups, anywhere where people gather together in a locality and are associating on a broadly voluntary basis. I appreciate for the teachers listening that they might have a view about whether children in schools are really voluntarily participating. But the point is certainly in the UK that schools are important community institutions as well as places of learning. So the first thing is we have an institutional focus and we think that those institutions are crucial not only for the health of civil society, but also for the health of our democracy. And if we have strong and effective institutions, then our democracy is much more likely to be strong. The second thing that we focus on is leadership development, because for people in those organizations, they know what they're angry about. They know the things they want to change. And most of the time, they know what it is that they want to do instead. They can think of a better alternative. The problem is twofold. One is that they don't feel they have enough power to get around the table with the decision maker and change the thing that they want to change. And secondly, they don't feel like personally they have the leadership skills to drive that change. So what Citizens does is twofold. We firstly build power, and we do that by building alliances of these different civil society institutions, churches, schools, mosques, and trade unions, so that we get taken seriously by those in positions of power because of the number of people that we represent in a community. And secondly, we provide leadership development training to enable people to run the campaigns that make change. Now, the phenomenon of migration is a really complex issue. The trade unions and the teachers working with the unions and members of the unions sometimes have a hard time navigating all this complexity. Mm -hmm. You have Mm -hmm. teamed up with Nasut to develop refugee welcome schools. Why did your organization decide to partner with an education union specifically? 
Mm-hmm. And what is the synergy that came out of it? How do unions contribute to mobilizing in favor of migrants and refugees? Well, the reason why we partnered with the NSGWT is partly because of the nature of the resettlement program for Syrian refugees in the UK, which we were at the heart of campaigning for. And this touches a little bit on your point about complexity. When the in sort of 2013, 2014, as the Syrian war was really developing and intensifying, And as uh, we saw huge numbers of refugees in Lebanon and Turkey and Jordan, and of course, then trying to travel to safer parts of the world in in Europe in particular, there was a real feeling amongst our members. We're a democratic organization, so our member organizations democratically decide on the campaigns that we run. A, A growing number of them were saying, we do lots of work to campaign for improved conditions for refugees and those seeking asylum who are already in the UK. But what can we do about the terrible scenes we see on our televisions every night of Syrian refugees who are displaced in the Middle East? And there was a real feeling of hopelessness, of people feeling, well, actually, there's nothing we can do other than maybe send some money to organizations that are working in in the region. And there was certainly a sense that the British government, a sense of anger, really, at the British government's response when we encouraged them to resettle Syrian refugees, because at this point, only 50, 50 Syrian refugees had been resettled in the UK at that point. You could have got them all into a coach. And the British government's position was, we're not taking any more because our role is to fund aid in the region, in the refugee camps. And they were very proud of being the biggest bilateral aid donor in the world, second biggest, I think. And they were saying, look, that's what we do. That's our contribution. We don't need people coming here. And we felt that was an inadequate response, and so did our members. And so they began to organize. And this is when schools first came into the picture, because we said, well, look, the British government is showing no appetite to resettle people or to allow them to come here. What would it take for us to change that? And one of the reasons why the British government was giving for not resettling refugees was that there wouldn't be any appetite for that at a local level, that local authorities wouldn't want to do the job of resettling them, that local communities wouldn't welcome them. You've got to remember, of course, we're in a time of great austerity and post the financial crash. The budgets for local councils were being cut year on year. And there was also this sense of, well, we've got lots of needs already here in the UK that we're not dealing with adequately. So why should we bring refugees here? Shouldn't we be looking after our own first? So what we did was we organized at a community level and we began to bring together churches, schools, mosques, trade unions and others to say, well, could we bring a coachload of Syrians and resettle them in our community? We've only done a coachload for the whole of the UK. What about if we did it in our town or our city? Could we bring 50 people? And how could we be involved in that? How could we help make that happen? And that's when schools first started to get involved, because obviously there would be children as part of this, and a big impact of this would be on educational systems. And then we started to go to local councils, to the political leaders, and saying, look, you could do something here. Would you commit to taking 50 in this town or this city? And so we began to get a bit of traction around that. That was a bit of an uphill battle. But schools began to be involved at that point of the discussion. And then that uh, escalated up to a campaign that, um, at, at a UK-wide level. And of course, then when this became a huge um, issue across Europe, suddenly we had this huge surge of interest because we've managed to get a couple of local authorities to say, yes, we'll take some uh, a small number of people if the UK government will allow us to do it. And that put massive pressure on the UK government to give in. 
Um, and suddenly we had all sorts of people joining our movement um, and taking the campaign up with their local council. Um, and we then, that's what helped us get a commitment from the UK government to resettle 20,000 Syrian refugees um, before 2020. And because the UK government agreed in that resettlement programme that this would be families, in almost all cases there would be school-aged children, which is where the need to develop refugee welcome schools became clear. Because up to now, refugees had, and those who sought asylum had lived in a relatively small number of towns and cities in the UK, and they built up effective systems for integrating and including refugee children and their families. But now there will be Syrian refugees going to villages and rural areas and towns that had never had any refugees and had no infrastructure uh, and no understanding of how to do this. So we set up refugee welcome schools specifically to deal with that particular problem and to set some standards about what it would mean to, to welcome those families uh, and those children and to educate their wider school and community population about the importance of sanctuary and then also to get involved in campaigning to make the lives of refugees, whether they come from Syria or elsewhere, better as we go. And it's in that context that we built the relationship with the NHCWT. Obviously, they're a teaching union with lots of uh, members, and we're very interested in exploring how they can get more involved in community organizing more generally. But here was a very practical thing that we could work on together and, and help to develop and spread the Refugee Welcome Schools movement. Mm -hmm. We're talking a lot about schools right now, and we all know that the general political atmosphere and social atmosphere is uh, um, racist attacks and hate attacks against some minorities. And of course, schools are not necessarily left out of this scene. I guess this was a big challenge when, when creating these refugee welcome schools, but probably just one that I can now think about. Are there any other challenges that that you've been facing trying to mobilize schools and communities around refugees and migrant inclusion, especially in, in this context, right, that we that I just mentioned of rising xenophobia, of Brexit, of, of mm -hmm. a more excluding attitude than an inclusive attitude in, in the UK? Yeah, I mean, if, if you were to take a snapshot now and look at the situation here, I, I can see why you might have that analysis and might think that this is... Uh, problematic, you know, Brexit has unleashed all sorts of political forces, which which are explicitly xenophobic and and in some cases have explicitly targeted refugees. However, I mean, I, I've worked around refugee policy since 2005, and and before that, I worked in Westminster, and actually that was quite a big part of my role there. So let's say since 2003. And even before that, at university, I was involved in, in student action for refugees. So I've been really thinking about this issue since really 2001. And I think actually now the situation in terms of inclusion of refugees is better than it was in 2001. In 2001, really up until 2008, we had a really aggressive and virulent campaign really driven by some, some newspapers in the UK, which demonized those who came to the UK seeking asylum and talked about people flooding in. What we saw in 2015 was a huge change, where suddenly, briefly for a window between about kind of September 2015 and maybe lasting six months from that time, there was a huge move in the other direction, where suddenly people were very supportive of particularly the Syrian refugees and the idea of Syrian refugees coming. And I mean, just to give you a little sense of this, on our website, 
we got more hits on the three days after Alan Kurdi's photograph appeared because we were associated with that campaign. We got more hits in those three days than we had in the entire history of our website previously. Okay, that just shows you the scale. We went from having about 15 refugee welcome groups around the UK who were campaigning for their local council to about 95, pretty much overnight. And we partnered with other groups like Avaz and 38 Degrees and others who are really good at digital campaigning to help manage and, and scale up that movement. So there was a, a really interesting shift. And now, you know, I'm not arguing that people who were racist before suddenly became very friendly towards refugees. But the dynamic in our country is that we have about 15% of the population who are very pro-refugee and very what we call confident multiculturalists. There's a 50, another 15% of the population at the other end of the spectrum who are actively hostile, and then everybody else is somewhere in the middle. And so what we, what we had happen uh, in 2015, and to some degree we're still reaping the benefits of that, is that some of the people who are in the middle um, and who are either passive on this issue or, or were kind of unclear or a bit uncomfortable were suddenly very comfortable and very active in working on this issue. But one of the one of the challenges at the time was managing that massive surge of interest and finding meaningful things for people to do, which is an, another reason why we set up Refugee Welcome School, uh, the schools program. But but also um, that, like all social movements, has tailed off, and that lots of those people who were actively engaged in those days have moved on to other things that are now the kind of the the big topical issue of the day. So one of the issues we've had and one of the challenges is has less frankly been the, 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 the challenges of the far right, it's more been this massive shift in engagement amongst people who are more broadly pro-refugee and finding ways of managing and engaging those. And while I don't want to be complacent about, uh, about the far right and about extremism um, and hostility, that hasn't been the defining experience of most of the refugees that have come. Most of their experiences have been, is of, has been of being really warmly welcomed by communities. And that's because for, for the first time, we've had really community-led resettlement, whether that's been officially through the community sponsorship program, which we've taken from Canada, where actually local communities are themselves responsible for resettling a family, not the Home Office, not the UK government, not the local council. Or if the local council are doing the resettlement scheme, they're being supported by refugee welcome groups in the community. And that never really existed before in anything like the same way. Um, so, so in some senses, actually, um, we, we have a much better developed refugee welcome infrastructure uh, in the UK than we did before. And that has provided some real protection for those refugees who've come and meant that key opinion leaders in those communities are now generally much more positive and welcoming towards Syrian refugees than would have been the case before 2015. You were talking about the successes and the things that you have achieved in the UK. And because we have an international audience, and I'm sure that many colleagues are thinking, wow, that's that's really fantastic, everything that you've achieved. Mm -hmm. How could we, how could we um, achieve the same? You, you First, I want to ask you what you think is the, the added value of working with, with the whole community instead of just, mm -hmm. you know, um, setting up a strategy of, of a single organization and if other unions and members of unions around the world other people who are listening to us today would like to organize a similar movement what would you what would your your best pieces of advice be for for those listening yeah and i, and I would also say that 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 um with a uh, due degree of humility that that um, while what we've done in the UK has 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 worked well, 
it is in the context of a very modest refugee resettlement program. So if you compare the UK with, say, Germany or with countries in uh, in, in the Middle East and North Africa who, who, who have uh, taken a million people, you know, we've only taken 20,000 Syrian refugees. And in a way, uh, you know, when we speak to other civil society organizations in Greece or in Germany, they don't have time to do some of the stuff that we're doing just basically because they're meeting the needs of a much greater number of people. Uh, and that does that does really need to be recognized. We've we've been able to do this really only because a modest number of people have been resettled here and we've had the, uh, the, the time to do that. But but either way, um, I think um, engaging the, the wider community is always going to be worth it because of the long term integration outcomes that you'll get. And I'll just give you a little example of this. So there are two programs that run in the UK. There's a local authority-led resettlement, where essentially you have council workers who are funded to um, provide support and integration for uh, refugee families. And then you have community sponsorship, where that work is essentially done by volunteers. And when refugees arrive in the UK, their needs are often very complex. And with the best will in the world, you know, a, a worker working for a local authority supporting, say, 10 families in their area, there's a limited um, amount of personalized support that they can really provide to um, to those families. And, you know, it, it'll be professional support and they'll be well supported and well connected and so on. But it also will be a bit impersonal and will cut off at a particular time when the funding for that program ends. If you that compare that to some of the areas in which the whole community has led the sponsorship, so we have a place called Fishguard, which is a town about as far west in Wales as you can get. It's right on the coast. It's the last place you get to before the ferry for Ireland. They'd never had any refugees come before. It's a very small place, only a couple of thousand people live there. But the refugee families that have gone there have about 60 volunteers who have some degree of responsibility for their integration. And what that means is whenever they're out in the town, there is always somebody smiling, somebody looking out for them, somebody, a face that they know, somebody who can help them with that integration. And it means that in a way we can have different people with different skills supporting different members of the family. So if there's somebody who's got very profound health needs, you know, we could have someone who might be a retired GP or a nurse who can really help them navigate our health system here. Or if we, we in Fishguard, we've got uh, some people who are experts in teaching English as a second language, and they've, they've been able to design a fantastic community-based English language learning uh, process that with the best will in the world, the local authority staff wouldn't either have the knowledge or the capacity or indeed just the time to be able to do that. So there's a direct benefit, I think, for the refugee family in that if the community is involved directly in, the, in, in their integration, then you will get more capacity, more skills, and, and a longer term relationship that isn't dependent on funding because that community has made a commitment to welcome and integrate that family into their, into their area. But also we see massive benefits um, for the community itself. So lots of people think that the community sponsorship program is all about transforming the life of a Syrian family. Actually, our experience is it's as much, if not more, about the transformational outcomes for that local community. It gives a wonderful opportunity for people to come together to build bridges. And this has been a very positive thing that people have been able to come together at community level and build relationships with other people in their community. So by welcoming other people to their community, they're actually building and strengthening their own community through that process. But also it means that we can make sure that that family experience a genuine welcome. So one of the things that some of our community groups have done is gone round to all of the key 
community leaders and opinion formers in a local community, whether that's the head teacher of a school, the local police, the local mayor or the local councillors, the people who run the faith communities, the trade unionists, the sports clubs, the rugby clubs, the cultural organisations, and have sat down and had conversations with those people to say, look, this is what we're planning to do. This family will arrive sometime in the next year. We'd really love you to be part of welcoming them. And is there a way in which your organization could be part of that process? And people love to be involved in that kind of a process. And it's, it sets a very different dynamic. Whereas in the past, the government would basically just put a family in a community and say, there's no consultation, they're going here. Um, now what's happening is that the local community as a whole is rethinking this and seeing this not as a duty or as a burden, which sadly is the dynamic in, in some of our previous efforts at re refugee support. They're actually seeing it as a way of them providing hospitality. And that completely then changes um, uh, the, um, the, the, the context in which those people are seen and people see them as our refugees. Um, they're the families that we are responsible for and that we help to invite here. And that really means there's a you know, for any far right or extremist or, or racist people there, um, they they are so well protected by all of the civil society infrastructure that by and large those those people just won't raise their heads. They, they, they know that actually the community is supporting these people and that they're not isolated. Um, so that those broadly we'd say are, are um, some of the key things in terms of key benefits in terms of involving the community. Um, in terms of steps of going about it, we always say as community organisers, that relationships and institutions are critical to the success of any community endeavour. There is a danger of seeing this as a list of tasks. Oh, look, there's a family that needs uh, resettling. Uh, they need a house. They need GP appointments. They need to go to the job centre. And it becomes a very bureaucratic exercise. Um, but by and large, um, if something stays as a bureaucratic exercise, then it probably isn't going to last the amount of time that it takes because really you need strong relationships between different people in communities to underpin this. So we would say before you start um, actually spending time building relationships between different community institutions and different community leaders and finding out why they want to support refugee families. What are people's personal stories and reasons that are, are motivating their participation? And if you spend time building relationship and focusing as much on the relationship between yourselves as people in the community as you do um, supporting the refugee family, you will not only uh, have a successful experience of integration, you'll also come out of that as a stronger community in and of yourself. Those are really good pieces of advice for our audience. I'm sure that many of our listeners will be motivated and inspired and maybe take a first step towards organizing their communities. Thank you very much, Jonathan Cox, for being here with us today. And uh, we would like to welcome you in another Advoices podcast sometime soon. We'd love to do it. Thanks a lot. To get the latest global education news and advocacy, subscribe to Edvoices on your favorite podcast app or anytime on SoundCloud. And as always, tell a friend, spread the word, and please give us a review on iTunes.